0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented
1: by University of California Television. My name is Dan Dynan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute here at the University of California, San Diego. This organization has been operating for over 30 years, and it's become somewhat of the premier senior citizen organization from an academic standpoint in the United States. We conduct classes here on a year-round basis, five days a week. We have an amazing array of subjects. International affairs, science, literature, history, politics, foreign languages, live music, religion, and art, and we go on and on. We have something for everybody here. So those of you who live in San Diego or who are vacationing in San Diego, we welcome you. Come and join our happy group. Through the years, when I introduce Dr. Jane Vaya, I say, "Welcome to the revolution." And the reason I say that, and I think it's very appropriate, is I think Jane is a true revolutionary. She's following it in the steps of many other visionaries like Joan of Arc, George Washington, Susan B. Anthony, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and All of those people fought the establishment. Unlike Joan of Arc, I don't expect she'll be burned at the stake. But I do suggest to Jane that if she's walking by any cardinals or any bishops who might have matches or lighters to be a little careful. Five years ago, Jane gave up on change from the male dominated hierarchy and its discrimination against women. She, like many other people, saw no potential for change. She joined the Roman Catholic Women Priests Movement, became a deacon, and three years ago was ordained a priest. The last three years, she has been presiding over a fully functioning and thriving Catholic community, Mary Magdalene the Apostle Catholic Community. Weekly Mass on Sunday at 5 p.m. is at Gethsemane Lutheran Church here in San Diego. (laughs) And I put the website on the side here, it's MMACC.org if you want any further details about services and so forth. Marginalized Catholics have joined the community and joyfully responded to Jane's inclusive leadership. The success really hasn't been easy, it doesn't come easy. As you all know, revolutions rarely succeed without a struggle. And there's been vehement opposition from the Roman Catholic hierarchy. And the usual problems, of course, of starting up a new community. Jane has weathered the slings slings and arrows with grace and dignity. You may ask, you know, what are qualifications? And that's an amazing lineup of qualifications she has. They're very impressive. She's got a bachelor's degree in Spanish from Purdue University, a Ph.D. in theology, and religious studies from Marquette and she's been a tenured professor at the University of San Diego. She also has a law degree from the University of San Diego and amazingly has a full time job now as a prosecuting attorney here in the San Diego Attorney's Office. I think what's particularly noteworthy about Jane is that she's a mother and a wife and happily married for over 25 years, 25 years. And uh, she has two grown adult sons. So who would suggest that she doesn't have the credentials? I'm afraid there are people that would suggest it. Please, if you join me now in greeting a true transformational figure in the church and a brave and courageous gal, Dr. Jane Vaya.
0: Thank you very much. Those are big shoes to fill. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to share with you a few of the significant experiences of my first three years as a Roman Catholic woman priest. These years have been eventful. They've been challenging, exciting, demanding, rewarding, sometimes trying, incredibly enriching, fulfilling. I could go on and on. I've chosen three experiences experiences of these past three years to share in my opening remarks, and then I look forward to entertaining any questions or comments you may have during the remainder of our time together. The first experience that I'd like to share with you was a very unexpected experience in my life and a very personal experience in my life. I was last here at Osher, In March of 2007, I'd been ordained a priest about nine months at that time, but by September of 2007, so not that much later, I had found a lump in my breast, and on January 2nd of 2008, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and a fast-growing, life-threatening variety of breast cancer, which had spread to my lymph nodes in the area next to my breast. The tumor was small. But because the cancer had spread to my lymph nodes, the treatment was systemic. So I was in treatment from February of 2008 through April of 2009, including six months of chemotherapy, surgery, approximately seven weeks of radiation, and a year of biomedical treatment that's administered in a manner very similar to chemotherapy. I mention this personal experience because it changed me. It changed my lifestyle. It was a life-changing event. I was born on Thanksgiving Day, and I've always had a special connection to gratitude, but cancer plunged me into the depths of gratitude in a way I had never previously experienced. It also heightened my existing character preferences, I think, for honesty, integrity, and mutuality in personal relationships, and it made me less patient um, with what, by contrast, sometimes seems to me uh, to be petty quarrels or unnecessary lack of kindness among other people, (coughs) or even in myself. The challenges and lessons of those 14 months, of which the ongoing medical monitoring is a regular reminder, were in significant part made doable by the incredible support of family, of friends, and the Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic community. So this experience, which was right smack in the middle of the first three years of my priesthood, um, certainly has intensified my appreciation for good health, for living each day to the fullness, and for all of life. That appreciation has just soared. The second experience that I wanted to share a little bit about was uh, less personal, but uh, also not unexpected <laughs> That happened on May 30th of 2008 when the Vatican in L'Observatore Romano, which is the Vatican newspaper, published the decree of excommunication. Now, the significance of May 30th ought not to be overlooked because that's the feast day of Joan of Arc. (laughs) Uh, I'm very confident this was a conscious, deliberate choice on the part of patriarchs who really aren't converted to the sainthood of Joan or the independence that she demonstrated as a leader within the church. Um, She, of course, was a strong woman who dared to speak truth to the power of the church of her time, And she was executed as a result. And as Dan said, it's unlikely that I'm going to be burned at the stake. But it's only unlikely because the world and the church have changed and the church no longer has the political authority to enable political entities to carry out executions on its behalf. Now, the decree stated that any woman who attempted ordination and any person who assists a woman in attempting ordination... Is by their own actions excommunicated. So this decree extends not just to myself and to all other women priests, whose ordination the Vatican doesn't recognize, <coughs> excuse me, but to all who assist a woman in attempted ordination. Technically, that means that everyone who supports the ordination of a Roman Catholic woman priest in any public way. And probably everyone who's a regular member of Mary Magdalene Apostle, Catholic community, is also excommunicated. So this is not for the faint of heart. I wanted to speak just briefly to what excommunication is and what excommunication is not. Excommunication is a discipline, a legal discipline, codified in a body of law, which Roman Catholics call canon law. And excommunication by one's own actions is referred to in canon law as excommunication lete sententiae. But excommunication, because it's a legal action and a legal concept, pertains to one's canonical legal relationship with the Roman Catholic Church, not to one's relationship with God. Excommunication can be reversed. It can be reversed if the excommunicant recants or uh, denies those actions which qualified him or her for excommunication in the first place. Um, Even if one never recants, excommunication does not mean one is no longer a Catholic. It simply means one is not a Catholic in good standing and one cannot be a recipient of any of the sacraments. From my perspective, excommunication illustrates a major issue in the Roman Catholic Church. About the 11th century, when the first body of canon law was really codified and established in Roman Catholic history, it became the measure for authentic Roman Catholic living from my perspective, for any human beings of any generation to believe that they can articulate laws which capture and embody the gospel values of Jesus adequately and completely in any generation, in any culture, for any time and for any place is presumptuous beyond imagining. But that's really what canon law is all about. And unless and until... Roman Catholic people stand up to the church and say we're about living the values of Jesus. Canon law is a body of literally man-made law and you can spend as much time as you want on it but our task as Christians is to live the gospel, not to live according to canon law. Now as an attorney, I understand and accept the legal consequences of my actions. In fact, I consider my actions religious disobedience, um, similar to civil disobedience in civil society. And I did the actions that I did to demonstrate that not only is canon law inappropriate in a Catholic context, but it is unjust. Parts of it are terribly unjust. And specifically, my actions are intended to demonstrate that the canon is unjust, which states that only baptized males can be validly ordained. As a theologian, on the other hand, I have a whole different approach to excommunication. I don't accept excommunication as theologically valid. I believe it's contrary to the teaching of Jesus, and it conflicts with gospel imperatives, And there are some rather well-known people in the history of the Roman Catholic Church who, in a sense, shared those views. Thomas Aquinas wrote, it's better to die excommunicated than to violate God's law, a statement with which I heartily agree. An 11th-century abbess by the name of Hildegard of Bingen wrote that in the case of a wrongful excommunication, it's the clergy responsible for the excommunication rather than the excommunicated who will incur God's wrath. And she herself stepped out and incurred her bishop's wrath by refusing to disinter the body of an excommunicated man from the monastery cemetery. So she was placed under interdict, which is very similar to excommunication, but a lesser degree and deprived her, even as an abbess, purportedly deprived her, even as an abbess of um, access to many of the sacraments. And just to give you a little hint about the theological basis for my statements, I'd like to say a couple words about the gospel we call the gospel of Matthew. Um, It provides examples of why excommunication is contrary, I believe, to the teaching of Jesus. Matthew's gospel is often referred to as the gospel about church relations, or the catechism of the early church, or... The gospel that explores the roles of church leaders, the gospel that explores relationships between church leaders and all of the other members of the community called church. Just one of those passages is the parable of the weeds and the tares. This is in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, verses 24 to 30. And in that parable, taken particularly in the broad context of the gospel, so not just the parable in and of itself, but the parable in the context of chapter 13 and then the wider themes that Matthew develops over and over repeatedly throughout the gospel and the gospel as a whole, what this parable implies is that excommunication is not okay. Now, it doesn't use the word excommunication. This gospel was written at least 200 years before the church was Romanized in any way. So it didn't use the terminology that the church of the 5th century used or the church of the 20th century. But basically, the parable was addressed to the question of what do we do in church communities when there are people there who seem really not to be living the values of Jesus at all? What do we do with them? Do we kick them out? Do we tolerate them? Do we repeatedly try to call them to sense of a better sense of the values of Jesus? What do we do with such people? It's sort of the question Rome is asking about me. What do we do with her? <laughs> and they've chosen their path, which is to excommunicate me. In the parable, um, what we find is that a person who has a field and plants the field uh, and plants really good quality wheat, finds that the field has been infested with weeds. And the question is, do you tear up the weeds? Because if you do, you're probably going to threaten the life of the wheat. That's the position of the parable. I'm not sure it's agriculturally accurate, but that's the position the parable takes. Or do you threaten the life of the wheat by tearing out the weeds and trying to make the field a weed-free field? And the conclusion of the parable is, no, you have to leave the weeds growing among the wheat. When it's harvest time, God will come, God the harvester will come, and God will figure it out. God will figure out what is weeds and what is wheat. And God will somehow render justice in the context of all that. There's also um, an imperative articulated in Matthew's gospel And that imperative is that we must treat our enemies, even those who are in our own community, as tax collectors and sinners. Now, this is an imperative that many interpret, and I believe the official church interprets, to endorse excommunication. However, if one is really thoroughly familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, and one knows and understands that one of the key themes that goes from the beginning of that Gospel to the end of that Gospel is forgiveness— I think it's important to look at how Jesus in Matthew's gospel treats tax collectors and sinners. You have to look at his actions toward tax collectors and sinners to understand his teaching to his followers about how to handle tax collectors and sinners or people that you want to treat like tax collectors and sinners. And when we look at that, what we find is that Jesus never condemns tax collectors. He never condemns sinners. On the contrary, he makes the focus of much of his ministry, ministry to people who are sinners, and he includes tax collectors. He teaches them, he shares meals with them, and he welcomes them into his community of followers, which is just a little small band of humans that for him represent an eruption into ordinary life of what we at Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community call the kin Not the kingdom, but the kin of God. It's a kingdom because it's not a political empire, it's not a spatial reality, it's a reality of relationships between God and people. So theologically, I think there's a very strong basis to say excommunication is just not within the parameters of the value of Jesus, and to the extent that it's a legal concept in the Roman Catholic Church, it should be abandoned. I'd like to just add one other detail to this section about excommunication. Um, As many of you know, um, the co-founder and co-pastor of Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community is a priest of the Orange Diocese by the name of Rod Stevens. Uh, he was a priest for 35 years and um, worked in many parishes, worked in the chancery, was the director of liturgy for the diocese, and so on. He paid a double price with respect to the penalties of canon law. He was not only excommunicated, late sententiae, because he was the master of ceremonies at my ordination, uh, and by the way, has become incarnated as a Roman Catholic woman priest, But uh, action was also taken against him to remove, and unilaterally taken against him, to remove his right to function as a priest in any canonical setting. Now, he got these very formal Vatican documents notifying him that this action had been taken. And the documents gave as the cause for the removal of his faculties, they're called, um, his, quote, grave offenses. Now, the grave offenses were not defined, but since his long-term partnership with a gay man uh, had never attracted the attention of the Vatican and since his former bishop had officially and in writing um, interrogated him (coughs) about his connection to me, his connection to Roman Catholic women priests, and his role with respect to the ordination of women, Uh, I feel very confident that it was his assistance at my ordination and his willingness to co-preside at what we call authentic Eucharist um, with a woman priest that resulted in him earning this irreversible um, discipline of the Church. The next Major experience I'd like to share with you is that of the community itself, Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community, the little parish that um, Rod and I and a group of people, about 40 people, uh, began almost four years ago. We'll be four years old on November 27th. Um, I'd like to share with you just a little bit of what we've accomplished. What we've been doing is developing a model for democratization of the Roman Catholic Church, creating a model for the discipleship of equals and a new model for priestly ministry. We have also eliminated many, perhaps not all, we're working on it, but many of the vestiges of Roman emperor worship, which have been embedded in Roman Catholic worship for millennia. So we're trying to remove Roman emperor worship from prayer, liturgy, the language of liturgy, and from our theology as Roman Catholics. We have embraced the pervasive use of inclusive language in liturgy and song, even in traditional prayers that tug at people's hearts, like what's usually referred to as the Our Father. We call it the prayer of Jesus, and we have changed the words of the prayer of Jesus to Uh, from my perspective, reflect the authentic Greek in many ways, more accurately. Um, But we don't say our Father. We say loving God. And we do that because worship is not just about feeling good and being comforted. It's about justice in relationships. We've also developed an inclusive lectionary. Um, For those of you who aren't Christian, the lectionary is the book that sets what readings will be read Um, on Sunday mornings at church, and there are usually three read in most Christian churches on Sunday morning. Um, As you might guess, uh, many, many, if not most of the stories about women in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament or the Jesus scriptures have been left out of the lectionary. Not just the Roman Catholic lectionary, but other lectionaries. So we follow the Roman Catholic lectionary unless and until we come across a passage about women that's been left out. And when we do, we delete whatever the prescribed reading for the day was. We replace it with a reading about women that goes with the theme of the gospel. And then we look for a reading in the Hebrew Bible that meets those thematic needs. And we introduce that reading as well. So people who come regularly to Mary Magdalene are, by osmosis, getting uh, an education to the Bible because we are exposing people to passages about women that probably most people have never heard, many of which most people have never heard. We've adopted a different creed. We don't say the creed of the 4th century or the 5th century. We say a creed that's written by Joan Chittiser, who is a, a very well-known um, Benedictine sister, uh, uh, extremely um, proficient author, and although she's not trained as a theologian, she's certainly her Benedictine training has trained her in prayer and spirituality, and that's really her expertise in her writing. So we have adopted her creed, which follows the essential structure of the traditional creed, but speaks to modern life, modern theology, and uses modern language. Uh, We've rendered the theology and language of the center of Roman Catholic worship, which Roman Catholics call the Eucharistic prayer, we have rendered that into both contemporary theology and contemporary language. Like Chittiser in her creed, we follow the structure of the traditional Eucharistic prayer. So there's always a prayer about God, there's always a prayer about Jesus, there's always a prayer about the Spirit, there's always a prayer about church leaders, and so on. We follow the structure, but we change the words so that they're contemporary, and we change the theology so that it's contemporary. And we've incorporated the participation of community members in the Eucharistic prayer. So the Eucharistic prayer was always reserved for the priest. But at Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community, we, the priest takes the first, we're sort of, the priest takes the bookends, So you you know when it's beginning and you know when it's ending, and everything in between is read by a member of the community. Uh, Those members change from week to week. There are ushers who make those arrangements at the beginning of each liturgy. I find it a very special part of worship, um, especially because I am situated in the center, and one just never knows where that voice is going to come from. And whether it's a male voice or a female voice or even the voice of an amazingly articulate seven-year-old who reads. It's very, very powerful to have the words of this prayer, which have always been reserved to the priest, to be shared with the people. And, of course, the entire community shares in what Roman Catholics call the words of consecration. So the words over the bread and wine, the prayers of blessing, um, the words which, in traditional Catholicism, converts the bread and wine to the body and blood of Christ. So by doing all those things, we have really shaped the role of the presider-priest so that the presider-priest is really the facilitator of the community's religious experience uh, rather than a necessary mediator between the non-ordained and God. And we've also, and I think this is really critical, this is something we're still struggling with, it's going to take a long time, but we're shifting the emphasis away from altar and sacrifice, concepts which were really pre-Christian to begin with, um, to table and nurturing. So we're not talking about ritualizing the sacrifice of Jesus. We're talking about remembering his death, his life, his death, and the church's experience of his resurrection, yes, we remember it with the words that he shared with his disciples at the Last Supper, but the, the point of the meal is to nurture us as community and to nurture us as individuals who will then go out into the world and live the message that Jesus taught. And we've developed programs for children to help them be Roman Catholic in a new and inclusive way, including a little catechism, Uh, which we wrote from scratch. We illustrated it Um, in it. Children are taught all about the structure of the liturgy as they would be in any traditional Roman Catholic parish. They're taught traditional versions of the prayers like the Our Father. Then they're also taught the inclusive language version of the prayer. And we explain to them why uh, we want them to know both and why it's important to know the inclusive language version. So we've come a long way. We have a long way to go, but we've come a long way. Um, About three minutes, I'd like to talk about why this community matters. It's just a little group of 120 people. Why does it matter in the grand scheme of things? What possibly can we contribute to the world at large? George Wilson, who's a Jesuit, recently wrote a book called Clericalism, The Death of the Priesthood. And he's a priest. For those of you who, d- who are not Catholics and don't know what Jesuits are, he is a priest. And he talks about, in his book, clergy as a sociological category, not unlike that of doctors, lawyers, professors, etc., People who have special background, training, education, and experience, which enables them to carry out particular roles in society that not everyone can or wants to do. Um, And to any individuals in any class of that sort, certain powers and privileges accrue as a result of their specialized training. So if you go into a courtroom, not anyone can just walk up to the front of the courtroom and walk through what's called the bar, that barrier between the courtroom and the part of the courtroom where the judge sits. But if you're a lawyer, you just walk right through. You have that privilege. If, if you're not and the bailiff doesn't know you, the bailiff will be right there stopping you as you walk through those gates to say, excuse me, who are you? Do you have identification? What is your business here? Even a lawyer can't walk into that little space right below the judge's bench. It's called the well. You have to ask permission of the judge to walk into that space. I'm sure all of those things have to do with respect for the office and protection of the person who's carrying out the office. But in any of these categories, doctors, lawyers, professors, priests, there is always the negative potential among both the individuals who practice those (coughs) specialized roles and the group as a whole to abuse their power and privilege. And when, collectively, a large number of those individuals begin to exploit their knowledge and their privilege for their personal benefit at the expense of those that they have been educated to serve, then they undermine the structures of the society of which they are apart and i think that's what's happened in roman catholic priesthood clericalism has become the culture of priesthood by which priests use priesthood for their personal benefit to the expense of the people they wish they supposedly were ordained to serve are is every priest like that Absolutely not. There are many priests who manage to step outside of that culture as individuals, just like hopefully many of us step outside of the dramatic American culture of materialism to experience values other than the mainstream values of our culture. But it's a huge cultural problem in the Roman Catholic Church. I mention this because everything we do at Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community dismantles clericalism. And George Wilson makes very clear, clericalism was not born only through the efforts of priests. It was created, and it's perpetuated not just by priests but by non-ordained people who tolerate it, support it. Oh, yes, Father, let me get that for you. When Father is perfectly capable of getting it for himself. So as long as the laity permits priests to use their specialized education in this way, um, clericalism will continue. And it's the reason why Roman Catholic priests can commit crimes, even terrible crimes like child sex abuse, and not be excommunicated or even necessarily disciplined. Rather, they get annuities to go live in some innocuous place where the people who are receiving the presence of this person have no clue that a child molester is coming into their community. So I think what's happened with clericalism is that the priesthood has forgotten that they are there for the people rather than the people for them. And everything we do at Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community dismantles that clericalism. So, um, what I think we are is a model for the future church. We are being the church we want to see in the world. And no matter what the church calls us, excommunicated or not, we call ourselves Roman Catholic. They can say we're not. We say we are. That may not apply to every single member of the community. I know some people don't care what their connection is to the canonical chart, church. But from the perspective, I think, of many of us and, and from my perspective, we are Roman Catholic. A final comment. I'd like to put this in a broader perspective, if I may, and that is that the Roman Catholic woman priest movement and Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic community is not just about women's ordination, even though that's a key piece. And it's not just even about radical renewal in the Roman Catholic Church, although it's pervasively about that. In the end, it's about living Christian life. We're just another parish of ordinary people struggling to live the values Jesus taught, values such as love all, give all, forgive all, judge no one but yourself, values that are very, very difficult to truly embrace and live minute to minute, day to day in one's concrete life. And so these values pertain not just to the, ourselves in relation to the church and the world, but in the experience of our little Christian community where we are struggling to make those gospel realities come to life. So, what we're about is about women's ordination, it's about radical renewal of the Roman Catholic Church, but it's about those things because both flow from the values of Jesus, the radical inclusivity that Jesus lived and taught. Margaret Mead once said, you all know this is one of my favorite quotes, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I like to change the words just a little bit. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed Roman Catholics can change this monolithic church. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you.
1: Jane, with regard to the Catholic hierarchy in America, cardinals, bishops, senior priests that you may have been in contact with, do you receive any support? I assume it would be covert support for your position.
0: No. (laughs) But we should mention that um, at least three bishops in good standing have participated in the secret ordinations of women priests and women bishops. So these are men who put their their entire professional lives on the line and possibly their lives on the line in order to make women's ordination happen. So there are – and I, I think there are a lot of clergy who are supportive – but they know that the discipline is very harsh if they were to openly and publicly support women's ordination or me. So sometimes I get little messages, you know. I saw Father so-and-so the other day. He said to tell you hi. He really wishes you well. Or I'll get a Christmas card addressed to, from a priest that's addressed to Reverend Jane Via. So there are little ways in which many clergy... Even Roman Catholic clergy show their support. Some very openly, but they tend to be priests in orders who have a little more flexibility—Jesuits, Paulists, Dominicans—people who don't have to live quite so stringently in the confines of a bishop who's being held accountable himself to the cardinalate and the
1: Pope. Jane, did you want to mention about Father Bourgeois, the Marinoler? He's uh been, I guess, the most outspoken supporter, hasn't he been?
0: Um, I guess that's true. He's probably the most outspoken supporter of women's ordination. He, um, for years and years and years, has been a, a protester uh, regarding political issues in in this country that he felt very strongly about. And he's from an order. His name. He's from um, the Maryknoll Order. But uh, when he appeared at the ordination of a Roman Catholic woman priest in Kentucky and preached at her ordination, it immediately brought down the wrath of the whole institution upon him. And um, I'm not really sure what the current state of affairs is, but it would not surprise me at all if he is forcibly laicized as my co-pastor was. Mine is a two-part question. First, um, can you tell us how many... Women have been ordained Roman Catholic women priests and also um, are, do you have any knowledge of them also um, forming their own communities as yours? I'm not up on the precise current numbers, so I'm going to guesstimate that worldwide we're at about 50 women, Canada, Europe, United States the movement has really taken off in the United States, probably because we separate church and state in our country, and that creates opportunities for us legally that women in Europe don't have. So, for instance, if you live in Germany, you can't go rent a Methodist church like we did at the beginning in order to have a place to worship. There, there are legal constrictions that um, really prevent women in some places from doing what we're able to do here in the United States. I would guesstimate that there's at least another 50 worldwide in training. Um, there are also a couple of men in the training program. I believe we've already ordained one man in the Roman Catholic woman priest movement. Um, and there are other communities. I think there are now 10 up and down the coast of of the western coast of the United States from Portland to San Diego. Um, all of them came after Mary Magdalene, and so they're at earlier stages of development. Um, but, for instance, there's one uh, just that just started up, I'm going to say, about six months to a year ago in the Santa Barbara area, and they have now just moved out of a house. So they were a house church. Now they're renting space in a Protestant church, You know and they're moving into that parochial setting. There's been um, a church, a group meeting in St. Louis for a couple of years now ever since those big controversial ordinations in St. Louis when a woman rabbi got slapped down because she allowed a Roman Catholic ordination in her facilities. there's been a community there, and there's a community on the east, at least one community on the east coast. There's a wonderful community that a woman priest does in the Florida area, I believe, that's a community of homeless people. So she's the, the pastor for homeless people in the park, and she goes there and celebrates Eucharist for them, and then they, the homeless are fed also. So their communities are coming along. I think we're probably still the most developed in terms of the parish model. For me, it was really an important goal, not just to reach out to all the Catholics who were marginalized, and that was one of my first things, but I wanted a parish for women, men, and children. For years, I participated in woman church. To try to keep my spirit alive in the oppressive patriarchal environment of official Catholicism. And I had wonderful experiences there. But I had little boys, and they were not welcome. My husband was not welcome. And I think Woman Church contributed really, really significant things to the movement that has now resulted in women's ordination. And what we learned about ourselves as women was very, very important. But I really needed to move on to worship that was for men, women, children, families, young people, old people. That was my vision and my dream. (coughs) And so partly perhaps because of the nature of my vision and dream and partly because we are a couple of years ahead, pretty much a couple of years ahead of, of any other community that's unfolding um, we're more like a traditional Catholic parish in how we operate and what we do. Or maybe not how we operate, but what we do. <laughs> when we operate. <laughs> to what extent were the teachings of Jesus um, an articulation of the ambient values of the uh, Israelites at the time, and to what extent were, do they differ? Or were they additions? Well, that's a very big question. You could write a dissertation about that. Um, I think in many ways, Jesus was very um, much in tune with uh, certain rabbinic schools of his time. And um, he was a critic of temple cult. He was a critic of priesthood. Um, He was a critic critic of sacrifice. Um, In other words, he was a critic of the people who grabbed the power and used it against, you know, the believers. So, um, But he was very mainstream Jewish, I think, in most ways. I mean, so I, I know some Jew, Jewish scholars say that there's not a single thing that Jesus said that hadn't been said before in, in Judaism. Um, and I don't think Jesus ever intended to found a church. I think he was just trying to reform the tradition he loved and embraced. And I also believe that if Jesus were to come back today, he would find a home in reformed Judaism, not in the Catholic Church. I think he would be <laughs> aghast. <laughs> and the place where he would feel comfortable is in reformed Judaism where the implications of his values have been much more thoroughly and fully embraced organizationally and institutionally than they have in the Roman Catholic Church.
1: My question would be to ask for a little bit of uh, Catholic History 101 for me. Um, what was the original justification in the 5th century for the, the preclusion of women? And, or, or what would the Catholic Church say today is the historical document that continues to preclude women's participation?
0: Well, it was, that wasn't the creed. I talked about the creeds of the 4th and 5th century, um, but the, the, the legal exclusion of women from ordained ministry seems to have come um, in the 10th, in the 1000s, in the 11th century. And why exactly that was is an issue that is debated by scholars Um, Roman Catholic scholar Gary Macy published about two years ago a book called The Hidden History of Women's Ordination in the West. And in that book, he documents the existence of ordained Roman Catholic women um, throughout the first millennium. But, you know, he's, he's very clear that ordained as we experience it today is not how ordained was practiced in pretty much in the first millennium of the church.
1: Uh, Could you describe your relationship with the with the bishop in San Diego the diocese do you get support from them or do you uh, what kind of money relationships do you have with them and so forth?
0: Um, Right now, we really have no relationship. I mean, I acknowledge him um, to the extent that I consider myself Roman Catholic. I acknowledge him as the ordinary, the bishop of San Diego County. So when we advertise Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community in a newspaper, I try to be respectful of that, and we usually say at the bottom, not approved by the local ordinary. Now, I know that his preference would be that we don't advertise at all. But uh, we're not going to not advertise. So when we do, we try to be respectful of his role and position and his office. Um, I talked to him a couple of times on the phone after my ordination became very public. I mean, once the news media picked up on it, he was forced to take action. And um, then we met. I met with him and the chancellor of the diocese, who's the canon lawyer for the diocese, and I took my a lawyer— with me to that meeting. And it was a very professional encounter. Um, The reading of his canon lawyer was that I was not at that point excommunicated, but rather under interdict. And he made that very clear. Um, He promised to give me a copy of the letter that he was sending to Rome, which he did do about me because he was obligated under canon law. I mean, I saw the canon. I understand that's his job. He's got to report to Rome. Um, But he, um, you know, he was very courteous and very respectful, and we've had really no contact of any kind since then. He did say to me that day, you know, Jane, it's not like I can just sit back and do nothing, not in the age of the Internet. Everyone in Rome knows who you are. And if I don't do my job, someone will be knocking on my door, and replacing me with someone who will, or words to that effect. Those weren't his exact words, but. Um. Why did you choose Catholicism? What, were you raised in that religion? Uh, when you when you realize exactly what you're going to be up against, um, I was raised in a Catholic home, and I know exactly what you're up against. Um, it's I, something I've been fighting my entire adult life and uh, I wonder why you chose that as opposed to Episcopalian uh, religion which would be more open to women it, it is more open to women in, in the priesthood um, at the time I chose to be Catholic it was not you know I'm old I'm 62 almost so you know I was tw- um, 18 when I was baptized a Catholic. I was raised in a Presbyterian home. My mother was not particularly religious, at least that I could discern. My father was uh, very much a man of faith, and my father was the one who made sure that we went to church on Sunday. Um, But there were—I lived on a little tiny block, you know, in a little middle-class Midwestern suburb of St. Louis, and there were like 13 little girls that ran up and down that street in a pack— And most of them were Catholic. So that was back in the days where if you spent the night at your friend's house on Saturday night, you either went to church with them on Sunday morning or you went home because they were not allowed to go to your church. They were not allowed to go to your uncle's wedding. They were not allowed to do anything in a Protestant setting. But there was so much about – so I was exposed to liturgy, Catholic liturgy very young. And there was so much about it that fed me. And in retrospect, this is just retrospect analysis, but I believe that it's because I, I'm very intellectually oriented. I was brought up in a very intellectual family. Um, both of my parents were teachers. there was a lot of emphasis on education. And I really needed the balance of symbol and ritual in my life. And Presbyterianism is a, is a great tradition, but it's a very intellectual tradition. The emphasis is really on word, language, learning, not ritual and symbol, and stirring up all the feelings that need for me to be connected to intellectual experience. So I knew by the time I was 11 that I was going to be Catholic. And when I chose to be Catholic at 18, the Episcopalian Church really wasn't any more open to women than the Roman Catholic Church was. Um, But I stay with it because the liturgy continues to feed me because at Mary Magdalene Apostle Catholic Community, we are Catholic, but in a way that really has stripped official Catholicism of almost everything that's offensive about it to an intelligent thinking person. Um, And because if everyone like me leaves, it's never going to change somebody's got to take a shovel to the mountain. Somebody's got to do that. And if all the intelligent, well-educated, articulate women walk away, it makes it so easy for the hierarchy to simply perpetuate what is.
1: Uh, how about the role of husbands and families in the woman priest movement? You know, traditionally the church used to say that Priests maybe shouldn't get married because they would devote too much time to their wives and their family. Uh, have you found uh, Phil being a hindrance or a help?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, my husband is definitely a help, but I don't think there's any question but that you know there's not enough time in the day to do all of the things that I'm doing well. You can't do it alone, and that's why... You know, on a very pragmatic level, that's why it's critical that the parish community I'm part of as a priest be um, a, dem- a democracy, that it's run by a board, it's run by a community council, it's run by committees that do the work that, res- that are accountable to the council and the board. You know, there's only so much I can do, and there's, o- there's very little I should do. You know, that's another issue. But in terms of time and effort, you know, there's no question that having a family, having a home, having animals, having children, those things definitely um, impact how much time one can give to this job. But right now, we have clergy who don't have families who probably have as much or more free time than I'll ever have, it used to be that priests were on duty twenty four hours a day right before the second Vatican Council, and they they were priests till they dropped dead they didn't retire, but it's not like that anymore, so we've already developed a different form of clerical culture in which priests have working hours, days off, vacations, um, they get on call, retirement yeah so so it's structurally, I think it's moving towards. Um, a framework that would, could accommodate families. And, of course, there are just endless benefits to um, being a parent, being a spouse. I mean, what that brings to your, your life as a religious leader in a community is just completely, it's the pearl of great price. I mean, it's, it's invaluable. And it's experience that unmarried clergy... Can't have, won't have, don't have, will never have.
1: Thank you so much, Jane.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.